Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy, and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national, and international news with analysis, discussion, and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Radio. And on the line for this week's program, we have myself, Jacob, and me, Zane. And Chloe. Yeah. So we have, um, for our program this week, um, this is our first program that we have recorded uh, in the midst of the stage four lockdown in Melbourne. Or, of course, well, most it's stage four in Melbourne and now stage three in the rest of Victoria. Although I did look at a map recently and noticed that actually quite a significant sections of, um, of Victoria, especially rural areas are only under stage two lockdowns and it's only, uh, the greater city of Geelong, um, mainly that is in a stage three lockdown at the moment. So, um, before we, uh, announce what we have coming up in the program, I would like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you, uh, and by broadcast to you from the FreeCR studio in Smith Street, because obviously this being a pre-recording, we're all in sort of, a lot of us are in different sort of locations, um, that it's being recorded, uh, that um, it's been recorded from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Uh, like to, um, FreeCR and the Green Left Radio program would like to pay our respect to elders past and present, and that acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land. So, um, I might pass it on to Zane maybe to start off the discussion actually about a recent kind of tragic event that happened in Lebanon recently, as if yesterday, well, as on, on Wednesday. Um, basically, uh, a, well, I'll let Zane go and sort of explain what happened. <laughs> yeah. So some, uh, genius from the Lebanese department of like, I don't know, customs, ports and warehouse. I don't know exactly what department it was responsible, but they've stockpiled a whole bunch of fireworks next to a quite a large stockpile of ammonium nitrate, which ammonium nitrate can be used either as a fertilizer or it can also be used to make explosives. It's commonly used in the coal mining industry. They'll drill a big <coughs> hole in the ground big long hole and then they'll put a bunch of this ammonium nitrate um it's kind of like the um osmocote um fertilizer that you might have used on your garden at one point they'll put a whole bunch of those little balls of uh ammonium nitrate down the hole then they'll put diesel on top of that and then they'll set it off and it goes kaboom and you only need a little hole that might be a few centimeters in diameter full of this stuff and that's how you get your uh, iconic blasts that you see when people are showing disturbing footage of open-cut coal mines. Anyway, so there's a huge warehouse of this stuff in uh, downtown Beirut at the port with um, 
close to 3,000 tonnes of ammonium nitrate. And as far as they're still investigating what happened, but it looks like what happened is the fireworks uh, were set off reportedly by someone welding and then the fireworks have kind of exploded and that has kind of detonated this big stockpile of ammonium nitrate next to it. And I'd heard reports on the radio saying this is a much bigger explosion than anything that's happened in Beirut during the civil war, during bombings by Israel. It's a much bigger explosion than has happened when there's been assassination attempts and it was akin to a small nuclear bomb going off. And I thought, oh, yeah, a small nuclear bomb, that's a bit, um, that sounds, it's obviously must have been pretty bad, but a, a small nuclear bomb, gee, that sounds like a bit of an exaggeration. And then I saw some of the videos and it absolutely looks like a small nuclear bomb going off with this shocking um blast wave that emanates from the explosion so yeah really horrific images to look at heaps of people in lebanon have filmed it with their smartphones the shockwave has smashed glass right throughout beirut it's it's seriously damaged buildings the last count i heard of the death toll was 100 people but just looking at the explosion it would seem that the death toll is probably going to be a lot higher than that. So, yeah, really, really horrific images coming out of Beirut. And uh, condolences to, to anyone who's had friends or family um, killed there or, or who've, whose house has been destroyed because a lot of people have had their homes destroyed by this blast. And it's really the last thing that the people of Lebanon and Beirut needed because they were already in a midst of a, a financial crisis and of course there's the COVID um, pandemic yeah and I think one of the things about this tragedy is it comes in a context where Lebanon is going through a period I guess of social unrest uh, especially in the context of the fact that last year saw massive protests in response um, to the government um, the fact that the government has been essentially implementing austerity, uh, increasing the taxes um, and costs of ordinary living. And one of the tragic kind of statistics that I read this morning is that over 300,000 people have essentially been made homeless as a result of this fire. And, of course, you know, also taking into account the COVID-19 pandemic in Lebanon. Um, Lebanon has been one of the worst hit countries. Um, when you actually look, you know, at the situation in, um, say, Melbourne, for example, you know, it seems like to be pretty, you know, we're in a pretty tough situation right now with COVID-19, but I would say Lebanon's in a much worse position, uh, especially for the, for the, mo- for the marginalised and the poorest in the community. For example, for a lot of um, people, um, working class people in Lebanon, uh, they're only entitled to two weeks worth of supplies and apparently they receive that monthly. Um, so, yeah, it's basically I think there is speculation um, that this fire um, and this tragedy will lead to a new outbreak of um, mass protests against the government. 
Yeah, I'll just add that the um, that they're calling it the Beirut crater, and the explosion uh, was over 405 feet um, in diameters, and over 135 people were killed. Uh, 5,000 people were injured, but I think the the death toll is is going to rise. So we you know we do show our our solidarity with you know the the, the families and friends of the people who lost their lives and. Yeah, our condolences. It's it's a very sad event, um, especially um, considering everything that Lebanon has gone through um, so far. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's gonna. It, we definitely should um, try and keep up with further developments um, as this arises. And actually, I'm interested, Zane, because you I noticed you posted something on Facebook about a particular situation that relates to this that's potentially brewing in Newcastle um, with some similarities. Apparently uh, a similar sort of chemical uh, is being stored somewhere in, in a part of Newcastle. Um, do you want to sort of elaborate on that? Yeah, so there's a plant in Newcastle, the Incythec plant, which manufactures ammonium nitrate, and there's about typically about four times the amount that was stockpiled in Beirut is stockpiled at this plant in uh, Newcastle. So that's on Kurugang Island. It's about 800 metres from residential populations at Stockton, and it's about three kilometres from large parts of populated Newcastle. So uh, if that was ever to blow up, it, it would be similarly um, catastrophic for Newcastle and the main point of that plant is to manufacture ammonium nitrate for blasting for the coal mining industry in the Hunter Valley. So this plant a few years back, I think it might have been in 2013 maybe, uh, released a bunch of hexavalent chromium gas as featured in the, um, as featured in the film, uh, Aaron Brockovich, um, and yeah, this stuff is mega carcinogenic. It's a really nasty chemical and this plant has released some of that. Uh, they've also released other chemicals into the uh, port of Newcastle before into the harbour. So I would think that the safety standards, um, are very rigorous, but it doesn't really matter. Like it's, it's, it only needs to be a 0.0000001% chance that the thing could blow up. And that's too much of a chance to like the footage out of Lebanon. The real take home message should be ammonium nitrate should not be stockpiled anywhere near civilian populations. It's got to be kept in a place that's got as a few people anywhere near it <clears throat> as possible. So yeah, there's been a, there's been a, there's a Stockton, um, community residents, uh, action group up there in Newcastle has been campaigning for a while to have that InsiTech plant shut down or moved. And yeah, they're, they're renewing their calls to have that thing shut down, uh, relocated following what, what's happened in Beirut. Yeah. And I think, I guess another, um, I mean, the fact just going back to, I guess, an earlier kind of statistic, the fact that, um, over 300,000 people uh, are going to be made homeless uh, as a result of this crisis, um, I think is quite indicative of, 
you know, how, in fact, these natural disasters, these disasters, not necessarily natural, these disasters can actually, uh, you know, in fact, can be a common feature uh, under a capitalist system that, you know, puts profit, um, um, profit before human need. Yeah, and it's just a pity because of the, because of lockdown, it's, it's a bit difficult to organise fundraisers and solidarity and cause of the, I was hearing uh, an interview yesterday with um, Jan Fran, who's uh, done some really good um, little videos for, for SBS and uh, Jan Fran is of uh, Lebanese heritage and she's got family there. And she said, because of the financial crisis that's happening already, it was the case before the explosion that you've got to line up for four and a half hours to get money out of an ATM or from a bank. So it's really different. It's really challenging for Lebanese diaspora in places like Melbourne, because even if you transfer money to your uh, family back there in Lebanon, there's no guarantee that a the bank has got the physical cash in its vaults to be able to give to people, and B even if they do have the cash or some of the cash on hand, uh, people have got to you know, line up for hours and hours just to get to the bank to get it. So, yeah, it's it's very challenging right now in terms of organising solidarity. So we'll definitely have to think about how that can be bypassed or, yeah, get a bit creative about trying to organise solidarity with, with the people of Beirut. At this stage there, um, in terms of building solidarity, um, there are a number of charities um, that have fundraising funds that have popped up for Lebanon. So we might um, have a bit of a look um, at what the best ones kind of are and maybe advertise it at our, on our program next week or even post it on the social media page. So, yeah. Anyway, um, maybe we'll, um, we potentially have our first interview coming in soon. Um, so I might just go play, I guess, a quick announcement uh, and we'll move on to the next part of the discussion. Hey, all you mob, it's Dr. Mark Winnetong here. Coronavirus has certainly changed the way we live, work and connect. These changes can be hard for some of us and can make us feel no good in our head or spirit, like sad or worried all the time. Some of us might already be dealing with other things like sickness, trauma, and this can make it really hard for us to feel good about anything at the moment. If you're feeling like this, remember, it's okay to ask for help. Have a yarn to someone you trust, like your family or an Aboriginal trust run on a health worker. You can also call Beyond Blue, Lifeline or the Kids Helpline to talk to someone or look at some helpful information at headtohealth.gov.au on the internet. A 3CR supporter. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Uh, and today um, we are very happy to have um, Alison Pennington um, with us today. Uh, Alison is a senior economist with the Centre for Future Work, um, which from my understanding, is an initiative of the Australian Institute, um, which is a progressive sort of Australian think tank that conducts public policy um, research on a broad range of economic, social and environmental issues, um, with the Centre for Future Work focusing on the issues of 
work, employment and labour markets. And Alison has done quite a lot of work um, in that kind of area. So I guess the first kind of question to sort of start off a bit of the discussion um, is the federal government has sort of hinted at a sort of kind of in, in the midst, I guess, of this pandemic has kind of hinted at a sort of post-COVID-19 um, recovery plan for the economy, which has been, you know, the trend has been streamlining of industrial relations, uh, even going as far as saying that they're going to be taking inspiration for from the likes of Thatcher. In fact, one sort of strange example of kind of streamlining is they're trying to decrease the time uh, that it takes for enterprise bargaining agreements to sort of um, be um, ratified. Um, so I guess, yeah, I, I want to kind of ask, start off a bit of discussion. What is sort of your perspective on on the federal government's own sort of post-COVID-19 recovery plan? Well, I think that if we take our minds back to where we all started as the shutdowns were introduced, uh, it was quite a remarkable time because we had a um, austerity-prone federal government uh, being forced into a position where it had to take up the mantle of active public investment and active spending in order to stop a, a worse um, recession or a worse decline. So, uh, like, the first couple of their packages that came through um, of multi-billions of dollars was mostly um, geared towards business, so um, trying to keep the flows of credit going, supporting, you know, giving them nice loans, and a very small amount went to households and to workers. Um, the second package they brought in was the job seeker doubling the coronavirus supplement, um, which was a interesting development. Uh, I think it's because they had planned that the stocks of the unemployed to expand massively. And I think they wanted to hold off on providing us a wage subsidy, which is what they did later on. They had to bring in um, the job keeper wage subsidy through um, pressure from various areas, including unions. And what we've seen since that initial uh, big spending program is like a real obvious uh, pivot and um, desire of the federal government to reinstate the status quo settings, if not push those settings further with regards to employer power in, in the labour market and in workplaces. Um, and overall maintaining this idea that we have to stop the Australian people from having expectations that government will spend money. Um, and that's why we're seeing all the austerity rhetoric and the, you know, the cutting of JobKeeper to some pivotal um, important workforces like the childcare workforce. Um, and so part of that whole political pivot is where we're seeing this uh, really remarkable development where Frydenberg is, is claiming that uh, Thatcher um, and Reagan are his biggest influences and inspirations, uh, contrary to the fact that it, it would be impossible to actually mount anything like an agenda that those those um, cretins introduced uh, in the neoliberal period, because we are actually suffering on the tail end of those of those policies of, you know, tax cuts um, and outs and smashing workers' wages. Uh, we're at a point now where this, this project can't really go any further. And I guess... Um... Going on from that, um, I guess the federal government um, has announced that from September 27th, uh, they're going to be slashing the rate of both JobKeeper and JobSeeker. I guess what do you think are going to be the economic implications of these changes in terms of how they will disproportionately impact on the poorest and most marginalised? Well, I think you could start by looking at how much money government is cutting. So at a time when the private sector is completely collapsed, 
all business investment. Businesses are shedding millions, you know, hundreds of thousands of jobs. Uh, when government spending is basically holding the whole thing together, if you cut government spending, it's going to increase unemployment, which is the the uh, the lie, I guess, that that the government doesn't want to say when they're saying we're being responsible and we're tapering the the programs. What they're doing is actually not only inflicting pain on those people who receive JobKeeper and JobSeeker, but they're actually ripping out $10 billion every month than they were, would have previously spent, which keeps people um, in jobs. So it's going to increase unemployment. In fact, they plan to take off 2 million people off the JobKeeper subsidy, um, and a large portion of those people will then go on to the unemployment benefit. They are, they tapered the JobKeeper, well, they, they changed it, the JobKeeper payment into two streams. So if you worked less than 20 hours pre-crisis, you go, you go, payment gets cut from the flat rate of 1500 fortnight back to 750. Uh, and then if you worked full-time hours, you go back, you go down to 1100. This is going to impact, there are a lot of workers who worked less hours pre-crisis and then employers jacked up their hours because they got favorable changes to the Fair Work Act which allowed them to increase the hours of workers to match the subsidy and basically push all of the costs of work of the workforce onto the public. Um, so those workers are going to have their pay cut and hours cut. Um, and then on the job seeker front, uh, which is the, the unemployment payment, the government cut that by $300 a fortnight. Um, and they substituted that with the ability of that, those people now to look for and earn income up to $300. But of course, we're in a, a depression era crisis. There are no there are no jobs to be sought, um, and the, this uh, we're seeing like an escalation of this uh, unworthy poor um, politics of damning and um, smashing the poor basically, and and smashing the victims of a health order and economic crisis. Um, and what we found at the Australia Institute was actually the, the impact of that decision to cut. The payment by 300 fortnight was going to directly plunge 370,000 Australians into poverty, including 80,000 kids. And that's just with that $300 cut and they are threatening to cut it further. So it's a, it's, it's creating a real, um, you know, it's a, it's a direct creation of a millions of people of high levels of insecurity and, um, and, uh, an inability to actually access some of their most basic um, needs like foods and medicines. Um, and it's obviously about maintaining a precarious workforce so that when those people are pushed into jobs, they're more likely to take shitty low paid jobs and uh, they're going to have a, a far weaker bargaining position when it comes to that moment. Um, yeah, so yeah, coming out of that, I guess there's sort of a lot of sort of different issues that sort of come out, I guess, focusing on kind of one of them. Um, one of the things about this pandemic um, that I've sort of observed has been really it can be argued very strongly that women in particular have disproportionately felt the most economic impact, even going as far, like, for example, even within the white-collar industry. Like, for example, while there's a lot of white-collar uh, jobs that people can work from home uh, to their to their credit, um, but, of course, for a lot of women workers who are in that position, they're probably expected uh, to take the, um, the brunt of the child-rearing as well. And um, I guess, yeah, from taking in some of those kind of points, what um, what can you, I guess, tell us about the sort of impacts on women uh, in terms of this um, crisis? 
I have grave concerns that what we are actually experiencing now is the erosion of decades of gains that women have made in accessing paid work. Uh, there, what we see in the, the labour market impacts of the crisis is that because women are more likely to work piecemeal, insecure work and work part-time hours, they were the first to be sacked. Uh, they were the first to lose hours and drop their hours back or cut their hours, uh, including the employer cutting their hours. And they were more likely to leave the labour market altogether. And, you know, Jacob, you're bang on. Like the, the key reason that it influences this isn't just because they are working those insecure jobs, but it's also because women shoulder um, the, the vast proportion of the caring burden in all of societies, direct childbearing, caring for the elderly, um, caring in community. And what we saw with the, the pandemic was an explosion in that caring burden as families had to immediately pull together to get through the lockdowns, to care for each other. Uh, and, you know, women resumed that role. and it, it resulted in a doubling down of that role. So when the government introduced free childcare, that was one of the easiest and most straightforward ways that a government could have supported and offset that massive macro social impact of a massive explosion in caring work. But of course, what they did um, a few months into the policy is they completely cut it. And that had a, an even already women were, you know, on their asses with with respect to access to jobs and incomes. But now they were it would be impossible for them to actually hold on to their jobs if they were holding on to them with their you know fingertips. But they wouldn't be able to look for work because they would have to stay home and care for kids. And so it's really been a perfect storm for for women's access to paid work. But it's not just what's happening in the labour market because employers are going to do what suits them. So they're going to they're going to lay off the cheapest workers who are always women. Um, but actually, the government has been making this much much worse. Um, not only did they cut the childcare subsidy, uh, they have been cutting public sector pay. They've whatever stimulus they've created, very small amounts, pittance really, um, into construction. There's a very bloke heavy industries which employ mostly men. Uh, so they are exacerbating the crisis for women. And yes, there was what also happened in the pandemic was this, uh, this, we had this stratification in workers between those who had the ability to work from home and those who couldn't. We estimated about 30% of the workforce could work from home based on um, the kinds of tasks that they undertook, in particular working from a computer, having more independence over there and agency over the hours. Um, but that also meant 70% of the workforce didn't have that ability and that um, that ability to earn an income while working from home. So I think what we would see in this time is because those who can't work from home are more likely to be those essential insecure workers, um, those people who could work from home who actually were more likely to be women, we're going to see those women now cut back their hours increasingly as the shutdowns and the health orders and the economic recession unfurls um, because uh, they are what we know, um, statistically speaking, women are going to be the ones who take on the caring burden. So the, what we'll see is even women who, who manage to secure their incomes are still going to be the ones um, who, who decline. So it's going to be a, a, the gendered impacts are going to be bad across the board. I guess another another key issue um, has um, that you sort of also raised has been unemployment. Um, yet, um, whenever the government kind of reports uh, about unemployment, they're generally working on the ABS um, sort of statistics. Um, and in fact, I'm not sure what time this was taken, um, but um, quite recently, the most recent statistic I read was that the unemployment rate 
um, within this kind of pandemic is only 7.4%. And of course, previously, I've seen you publicly kind of um, state on Twitter um, that you believe that the real unemployment rate to be 19%. And I guess in line with everything we've sort of discussed, I wanted to hear a bit of a sort of um, elaboration on that. Yeah, well, this, this is the hard thing because our unemployment statistics, they operate in a time of you know, relative normality. And in a crisis where you've got people being laid off, you've got government support programs that are, you know, like a subsidy that's holding people into jobs. It's difficult to know what the real impacts of crisis are at any point. But what we do know for certain is that the formal unemployment rate now and before, for a long time, it hasn't been an indication of the, the level of underutilization, which is in, we use this term in economics to talk about the relative capacity of people to work that isn't being realized. So that's not just unemployed people, that's people who are underemployed. Um, and that's people who are completely outside of the labor market statistics book altogether. And before the crisis, there were over a million of those people. That's huge. And that they were, most um, most of those people were, were young people and there was some really worrying trends that young people were being disconnected from work and education. But um, in this crisis, what we see, like the most recent statistics for June, so this is before the Victorian shutdown, so this is going to be a better picture than actually where we're at. Those statistics show um, about 992,000 people are unemployed, so that's near a million or 7.4% of the workforce. Uh, then you, if you add in though, those workers who didn't work, who were formally classified as employee, but didn't work a single hour, uh, and those who had their hours um, reduced by a great number, that's, that adds another 1.15 million people. And we include those people because in a recession, if an employer's back, cut your hours back to near nothing, there's a good chance that either you're on the job keeper subsidy, um, and, or, or, and or that the, the employer isn't going to make it on the other side. So if you add those two together and then you add the 400,000 people who have left the labor market, who have given up on looking for non-existent jobs, uh, since the, since the March lockdowns, um, that, that equates to 2.4 million people, which that's where, that's how I reached my 19%, um, adjusted total labor force figure. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess um, you brought this up before. I guess youth unemployment and insecure work um, were key issues, I guess, even prior to the pandemic. Um, and I guess want to hear comments on how the pandemic has exacerbated those issues because um, just recently, I mean, I'll, I was talking to Zane and Chloe about this, but um, I, I've been searching for a housemate and I noticed that one of the flatmate sort of .com.au profiles, um, one of the women on her profile, basically it said that um, she used to have work in the hospitality industry, but that now she has to work in as an Uber driver. And I kind of wonder if there is a trend um, of many young people in that situation who, you, who have lost work in insecure industries, such as hospitality, but have then sought employment in an even more insecure industry, such as the gig economy. Oh, absolutely. I think this is what's so like usually in downturns and big recessions, uh, like it, it hits in production eventually or it starts there or it gets there. And that means that workers who are in generally secure jobs feel the pinch. But what's so um, unique and like brutal about this about this big recession is that it immediately hit the most insecure people in society. And so those people in those customer-facing sectors like hospitality, uh, retail, the arts, 
they were already the most precarious workers and they were then um, because it's you know seen as like the entry level work into the workforce they were more likely to be young people and women and migrant workers as well so like these are the three most vulnerable groups in the workforce uh, and you know like any big economic event and big recession uh, we have an explosion in security and survivalist employment and that's what gig work is all about like contrary to this narrative that has been pushed as it's like a form of entrepreneurialism it is always taken up by the most insecure and most beaten down workers and so it's you know gig work was super important because migrants you know over a million of them were completely shut out of any government support when this crisis hit um, and that's always what government, you know, a conservative government's going to do that because it's the easiest, you know, the easiest people to beat, right? Because you can trump up this idea that they're undeserving because they're not, they're not Australians. And uh, what we're going to find now is, you know, more people just like the one that you're, you're, person you're talking about, Jacob, where young people um, would increasingly pull for survivalist employment. And that's what gig work is. It's outside of labour protections. Employers can freely exploit uh, workers, force them to pay for their own capital costs. Um, it's it's very unsafe, and there is some you know brilliant work that unions are doing, you know desperate work to try and in, install some kind of work health safety um, measures in this gig work, like the TWU do a lot of work there. Um, and yeah, I think you know it starts there. It's going to be all forms of self-employment. Gig work is just like a particularly exploitative um, form of it because these big platform companies are actually exploiting um, all of this unutilization but we're going to see all sorts of you know cash jobs and young people just scrambling whatever they can to, to pull together um, you know the incomes they need and this this is why it's for me it's like un, it's not totally not feasible how this this set of circumstances can continue like young people are the most educated generation in Australian history and, you know, our, our you know, world history shows that if, if smart young people get shafted and go back backwards compared to their parents' generation, they eventually organise and um, they do something about those, those conditions. So I, it's, I think it's going to be painful for young people for some time, but I do have a lot of hope um, that, that, those, that young people, you know, combined with their, the climate change realities, that they, they're going to have to pull together and, and do something. Um, I think Chloe wanted to sort of ask a question. Oh, yeah, just on what you were you were just saying that we have to to do something else, and um, you know, up to 3.5 million people are now on JobKeeper. Uh, some of those people, you know, might might not get their jobs back. Um, they're having their income now slashed, uh, like you said, to a maximum of a thousand dollars per fortnight. Uh, a lot of casuals. Um, are losing their jobs, and despite this, the the sale of luxury cars has skyrocketed. The, the stock market seems to be doing quite well, still making a profit. Um, you know, I know there's no easy solution, but well, how do you think we're going to get out of this mess? Um, you know, this recession before it all gets worse. The, you know, we have a PM that's saying things like we need a business-led recovery. The treasurer is becoming publicly nostalgic about you know Margaret Thatcher. Um, what what do you think? Um, you know, you said there's hope for the future. What what do you think we can do about it? Yeah, I mean, economically speaking, uh, you know, Australia's economy is dominated by mining and resources, and they, it's been this way since you know this bastard colony really began. 
and it's mining resources still controls the outcomes of what's happening in this crisis. That's why they've constituted the the COVID Commission, the National COVID Commission, and Parliament was suspended. Um, and we, it's possible, I think, to maintain this a set of conditions where mining controls industrial relations and you know the overall tax environment. And then they, and then government provides income supports and, you know, piecemeal, um, creates an environment for insecure low wage jobs. Like that's, that was our pre-crisis situation. And that's exactly the program of, of the coalition now. Um, you know, and there, but there are some pretty, you know, when I say I have hope that this, it, it can't be maintained. Um, you know, there's some pretty significant barriers to, to continuing these conditions. Um, and it's like for, for starters, the scale of unemployment, it's just it's too high uh, for government to keep peddling this this myth of a business led recovery. We have to be absolutely clear um, and progressive have to get get their heads around this and be willing to prosecute these arguments very confidently. There is not going to be a business led recovery like there is no such thing as a business led recovery in a recession the size of what you know we are undertaking right now. Um, like the, the private sector is completely battered. What's going on is that because their power is so much greater than organised everyday people, they are allowed to use the levers of government investment to their own advantage. So what's going to happen is there will be billions and billions of dollars of public money spent in this crisis. It's going to be a public-led recovery. Um, so this idea of a business-led one is is untrue. Um, but the government is going to find it very, very hard to convince the people that that what's going on is that business is leading. And that's where I think that there's um, there's going to be opportunities opening up, not just the scale of people who have been completely dislocated in this crisis. But there's, it's difficult to point to any layer of Australian workers right now and say that they are doing better um, than others. I think that this is a totalizing um, experience. And also, you know, like there's an ongoing battle about the relative, um, you know, stability and uh, the, the strategy of the public health approach that Australia has taken. I think people have actually really underestimated the the, the scale of the, the fight that's going on between the let it rip Trump-esque, you know, conservatives at the at the coalition Commonwealth level and the role that state governments are playing to, uh, you know, use government levers to you know literally shut down production which is what they've done in Victoria in order to save lives and if we think about the overall trajectory of capitalist economies that's a pretty that's a pretty radical and um, pretty remarkable situation whereby a government has has been forced to step in and um, halt the profit motive and halt business as usual on the on the condition on on the um, on the basis that it's in the interest of human lives. I think it's an amazing opportunity uh, that can be way better exploited. Um, well, first of all, it has to be recognised. And I think it, from there, I think there's a, a huge possibility that we can build a pro-public-led, um, you know, reconstruction agenda that is democratic, that, uh, you know, builds out of the, the support that everyday people have for our healthcare system and the the overall position that we want to save lives and make lives better after this crisis rather than go back to to what it was before. Yeah. Um, Zane, want to have a question? Yeah, Ali, this ties into an article that you had published in Jacobin last year saying uh, Australian, I think the title was uh, Australian Unions, We Need a Political Vision. 
and it's talking about how the history of the Australian union movement, with some exceptions, is that generally its bread and butter has been fighting over a share of uh, wages post-production. And the point that you were sort of making that article, which I think is very relevant right now, is that the Australian trade union movement doesn't really have a big history of saying, here's this big public works projects that we want. Here's, here's a way that we want to reshape Australian society to be better for the majority. And we're going to fight for it. Um, there's no shortage of stuff that needs to happen. We've got a climate crisis. We need to build publicly owned renewables, grid upgrades. Uh, we need energy efficiency refits. We need um, high speed rail and better public transport, more public housing. There's all this stuff that needs to happen. And can you just comment on, I guess, the Australian uh, trade union movement and the left needing to maybe come out of its comfort zone a bit or, or do something new in confronting this crisis and, and as you say, pushing for um, workers need to understand that our work, our productive activity, you said in that article, is distinct from wage labour, what we do that is economically valued by our boss. Um, I wonder if you could just comment on the, I guess, some of the implications of that article and how it relates to something like a, a Green New Deal as a as a way of getting out of this this slump that we're in. Yeah, right on, Zane. I think that uh, I mean, just to to start off with the Green New Deal, like Green New Deal is just a it's a version of this idea of a more democratic public led investment project. You know, one that empowers workers to lead a process of changing, you know, an economy in their interest and rebuilding it. And in our case, obviously, with climate change knocking on our door, it's like, you know, and Australia's actually really ill-prepared um, to, you know, to confront the impact of what climate change means on our ability to produce and live, you know, in our economy, in our society. Um, yeah, I think that the Green New Deal is a is a good framework. Um, it's, it's just like a, I guess it's a, the branding version of um, what is the, the principle yeah, of, of public-led investment that's democratic. Um, and, oh, I mean, where to start? I, I think that uh, it would be a really, really positive development if, if um, you know, left people in Australia could engage seriously with the mechanisms of building worker power. Um, you know, for many years I've... I've been working, you know, had my mind set on what's going on in the labour movement because, I, like, regardless of all the challenges and the historical precedents that we inherit, we can't deny that these are the most important institutions and the most powerful ones we have right now to go about changing the world for working people right now. So it's, and it's from that perspective, I guess, of a, you know, and I come from an independent working class perspective and I have an interest in building work, independent working class politics. Um, that, you know, it's it's not difficult to look at the history of the labour movement and identify that it's been hamstrung um, at critical points, really pivotal moments, and not just the accords. Like, there are lots of periods where um, unions, if they had the capacity to step out and strike on their own, um, you know, literally and, and in, a, in, in an ideas sense and in a policy sense, um, you know, they they could have... It, it, we could have we could have gone down different tracks. So I, I diagnose um, a lot of the problems 
um, in the capacity of unions to articulate these perspectives on the basis that they've deferred to their political wing um, and the political wing of, of the union movement is seen as the ALP. But I, I don't think that that's um, a permanent situation. In fact, there's a lot of contradictions that are and bubbling um, tensions that are there, in particular, like thinking about pretty key ALP figures who have come out and said, why don't we just cut these guys loose? You know, they don't bring anything to us. Um, you know, I, I would, I had, I'd apart from, apart from heaps of money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. But if they think that, that, that connections to working people don't give them anything, then like we'll see the, the further decline of, um, the ALP's rel- relevance. Absolutely. Um, so on the basis that, you know, it's, it's so important that unions start to articulate and develop these visions for working people. Um, I think that the, the ACTU's, uh, you know, five point jobs plan that they've brought out is like a really, really important development, important step forward. Um, and, you know, an important response in this crisis. Um, and yeah, I, I think that a combination of, you know, I think they are advocating for free childhood education. Uh, they've got a, a rediscover Australia policy idea, which is basically forcing the Commonwealth to pay the wages of major tourism and art sectors so that we can rebuild those sectors that have been most attacked in this or most battered in this crisis. Um, recentering TAFE and free, you know, free education in, into, uh, the reconstruction of a, an awesome skill system that actually gives people, you know, meaningful, tangible skills, stuff that we need to do things like, you know, upgrade our, our grids, um, you know, develop a renewable infrastructure, um, you know, spread that across all of the economy. Like there are so many technical and theoretical jobs that need to be done and we need to have workers with the skills to do it. And we need unions to be leading a process that says we're going to be in control of that. Um, and we need serious, stable in, um, in infrastructure investment. And we desperately need to rebuild our manufacturing capacity because it, it's been completely decimated. So all those, all those important jobs that need to be done, Zane, that you outlined, it's going to be very hard for Australian workers to do this without any manufacturing capacity. Um, I just wanted to finish like on a point you said about, uh, you know, you alluded to um, a quote in my Jacobin article about making a distinction between work and wage labour. And I think like this is just so critical for us to be able to to start to uh, embrace worker-led um, economic strategies. Like for a lot of time, people have just assumed any time we talk about economics or an economy, it's it's the same thing as private-led investment or private-led activity. Actually, working people every day, if we remove the wage relation, everyday working people are working all the time. Um, sometimes they sell their labour for a boss. A lot of the time they're just working in the home and reproducing human life and our communities. And the, the, the kinds of work that gets done, like, like that human effort is different to human effort captured by a small number of private interests who exploit that, pay us less and create a, you know, a market system whereby we're paid less for our efforts. So it, I think we absolutely have to start embracing a more, you know, totalizing pro worker concept of work that says work on our terms is you know, is the ideal because if we want to build the kind of sustainable, inclusive, equal world we want, uh, you know, on the other side of this pandemic, 
workers need to be empowered to, to be connected to their to their work as something that is theirs and they own for themselves and for their you know for their union comrades and for their families and communities um, and that's a lot of the work that we do at the center for future work is we're trying to impart that kind of knowledge and that kind of distinction so that we don't kind of just throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? We can't just, you know, there's no such thing as a post-work world. This doesn't exist. If we want to consume goods and services and we want to have, you know, something like the living standards that we have fought for, you know, for, for decades under this system, like we need to come up with ways of doing that, um, continuing to produce, but in ways that are more, you know, better for, for humans and not in the way that we do it at the moment. Well, thanks for that. Um, I think you basically covered kind of the last question I was sort of planning to sort of ask you because um, you talked a bit about, I was going to ask you, I guess, a question about some comments on the ACTU jobs plan, um, which I think you've um, already commented about in response to kind of Zane's question. Um, I think unless um, Zane and Chloe have any other burning questions, we could probably conclude this interview, but I guess I can open up to any kind of final comments you would like to make. <laughs> thanks for that, Alison. Um, well, I'm just going to play a quick announcement uh, and then we might move on to the next part of the program. Yeah, join me at 11 every Friday for some black and deadly sound. Please share community radio 855 on the AM dial. Voice of the people's repeat. Black and deadly Friday, Robbie Fort Radic Radio. Yeah, join me at 11 every Friday for some black and deadly sound. Please share community radio 855 on the AM dial. Voice of the people's Good morning, everyone. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and we were just um, talking to Alison Pennington, uh, who is a senior economist with the Centre for Future Work. Um, and we basically talked to, to her about all things related to uh, the economy, um, especially the, the impacts on the working class, etc., in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic, which was a very kind of insightful kind of discussion. Now, the next thing I kind of wanted to talk about is um, we didn't get a really much of a chance to talk about it at the start of our program, but I wanted to have a bit of a sort of reflection, I guess, on the current kind of state of politics, especially in the light of the new implementation, I guess, of the stage four kind of restrictions um, by the Daniel Andrews government. And I guess I think that I'll, my view is I think that in light of the health crisis um, and the outbreak of cases uh, in of COVID-19 in Melbourne and especially and even extended to Victoria, I think that the new stage four restrictions are welcome. But I guess the biggest um, sort of problem um, with how these um, how these how these restrictions are implemented is the question of supporting workers. And um, it was quite striking to me that um, a number, um, because of the, the impact of the new restrictions is basically that all existing industries that are allowed to operate, that are essential, are likely going to have reduced staff and reduced hours, which means that a lot of workers are going to be left behind, especially since I'm not completely sure if, these companies are eligible for JobKeeper. Like, for example, Woolworths is definitely not eligible for JobKeeper. It doesn't fit within any sort of requirements. And then there's the whole issue of childcare. Now, in Victoria, um, childcare is going to be closed for up to six weeks. And the only thing that the federal government has announced is apparently they're going to give all this money 
to childcare operators to keep running. And then somehow the money that they, when it comes to the question of the workers, because a lot of childcare workers are not going to be able to find work in this period, the only childcare work that will be happening will be for children of essential workers. And because it's even, they're going to be even stricter um, with, um, with childcare, it basically means that a lot of childcare workers are likely to be laid off. So essentially the only federal support that the federal government is apparently going to be giving is they're giving money to the childcare operators in Melbourne to keep operating. Uh, and apparently some of that money is supposed to go to the workers. So yeah, it's, it's been, it's definitely one of the, I think a key issue. And then I guess there's also been the issue, I guess, of workplace safety, whether, because even Daniel Andrews, I think, said at a media conference that there isn't necessarily harsh penalties for bosses who don't implement COVID safety safety measures. And basically they're relying on good faith, i.e. it's in the it's in the boss's interest to ensure a safe workplace. Uh otherwise they'll lose money. So, but there's not going to be any kind of harsh penalties for work um for bosses or companies that don't implement proper work safe kind of measures for COVID nineteen. And there was there was a recent case of Woolworths, a Woolworths distribution centre, where one worker had tested positive for COVID-19 uh, last week and had failed to inform um, the workers. And in fact, they basically said to the workers, you know, the workplace is all safe. We've done a deep clean, everything, you know, just go back to work. We don't have to implement any sort of safety measures, etc. But, you know, um, Workers at the workers at that distribution centre actually threatened to, to take strike action or did take strike action as early as this week, and in fact Woolworths um, conceded to the demands very quickly, um, which I think you know definitely shows going back to um, the discussion we had with Alison earlier, it definitely shows the importance I think of worker power, and I think you know with Woolworths being one of the only industries um, that is still allowed to operate, uh, a lot of spotlight is going to be on them if any workers sort of take action. So I think, you know, they're facing real pressure, I think. And I think, you know, um, yeah. But that's sort of like some of the kind of issues I kind of wanted to kind of raise in terms of the whole retor- um, the government sort of response. And in fact, I think that Scott Morrison, the expectation is that of oh, most most workers should just apply for job seeker if they're being uh, affected by um, this shutdown, and at this stage, he hasn't even hinted or alluded to even extending uh, the current rate of JobKeeper and JobSeeker for Melbourne. So, yeah, at this stage, yeah, it shouldn't even be called JobSeeker. How how can we seek for jobs that aren't even there? Um, and yeah, we we do stand in solidarity with the uh, the Woolworths uh, warehouse workers who you know they're fighting for for safety on the job. Um, the ones at the, they were just talking about Jacob, the ones at the Woolworths Liquor Distribution Center in the West. Um, yeah, big businesses, they just like to constantly play down the virus. Whenever there's an outbreak, um, they, they just choose to keep making profits instead of putting the health of their workers first. Um, they would rather keep operating uh, even when there's dozens of COVID-19 cases. And we, we should mention too, if you're out there and you're someone who's not eligible for job keeper or job seeker and you are in a position where you feel 
uh, forced to keep working, uh, well, not where you feel, but where you actually are, <laughs> to continue paying rent and being able to put food on your table, you have to keep working. Um, definitely get in touch with us via the Green Left Radio uh, Facebook page or uh, get in contact uh, greenleft.org.au. You can get in touch with people there. We'd be very keen to hear from you because there's a lot of people who are um, migrants or, you know, they're on some sort of visa that does not entitle them to collect job seeker or job keeper. And that, that situation still has not been addressed in any of these stage four measures and any of these revised measures, there's still not a safety net. There's one-off payments of uh, $1,500 if you, you know, tick all these boxes and you wear purple socks on a Thursday. Like There's all these boxes you need to tick to be eligible for those payments and it's a one-off payment and that's not going to cut it. If you've got COVID and you are sick for months with it, which we'd know that there's people out there who've been sick for months, a one or $1,500 payment is not going to cut it. So this is a real problem. And yeah, Jacob, you talk about the childcare sector. Come on, the most logical and simple solution here is reinstate JobKeeper for childcare centres. Even if childcare centres are experiencing reduced demand because the government is preventing people from sending their kids to childcare, Fine, but you've got to reintroduce JobKeeper for childcare workers so that as these restrictions are released, there's not this weird situation where childcare centres have got to, if they're still operating, they've got to suddenly scramble to put workers back on to kind of keep up with renewed demand. It's just a ridiculous kind of uh, violent convulsion to impose on childcare centres when the whole point of JobKeeper throughout the rest of the economy is to keep existing networks of workers in place and to maintain their ability to pay rent and, you know, put food in their belly. Uh, it's the most effective economic stimulus measures are those that go directly to workers. Once you start getting government handouts going directly to the bosses, you massively reduce the impact of that because when you've got a handout that goes directly to workers, whether it's job seeker or job keeper, then there's a very dispersed um, economic impact from that because people are constantly yeah, paying their rent, buying, buying food and stuff. If you just put large sums of money into the bank accounts of capitalists, it doesn't have the same stimulatory effect as as broad payments. So the the response to this has got to be expanded job keeper and expanded job seeker, keeping the rates high so that people are able to live comfortably. And crucially, we've got to include migrant workers. You can't create a situation where migrant workers are forced to choose between working while infectious or going homeless. It is absolutely unacceptable to be creating that choice for people. JobKeeper and JobSeeker have to be extended to be all-inclusive. Yeah. I'm saying, yeah, definitely spot on there. Um, Chloe wanted to say something? Mm -hmm. Oh, I was just, yeah, I was just going to basically 
um, agree with Zane, the, the, the crisis of the capitalist economy, it's just, you know, no one's experienced this since the 1930s, the Great Depression. And what's frustrating is we saw this, this crisis always coming. Um, COVID-19 just sped things up and insecure work and the casualization of our workforce is just making this pandemic worse. And, you know, with casual workers, they, you know, like Zane was saying, they, they do feel kind of forced to accept shifts, even if they might be sick. Uh, it's not their fault. Um, a lot of casual workers do um, take shifts just to keep, just to hold on to their jobs. I know the feeling um, of that. It's very competitive uh, when you're working a casual job. Yeah, and I think an, another issue as well um, is the fact that, um, well, actually, one of the things, going back to the childcare issue, um, that has been one of the key demands of the UWU, um, which is to reinstate JobKeeper um, for all childcare workers. And interestingly enough, I mean, the justification for why they cut JobKeeper was, um, I mean, Dan, Ter- um, Dan uh, Karen um, basically said that, you know, um, um, basically made the calculation on the basis of the easing of restrictions. But there was another issue with JobKeeper for childcare, and that is the reality is a lot of childcare workers weren't eligible because a, a number of them uh, come from migrant backgrounds. A number of them have only been recently employed. Of course, that's always been the problem with JobKeeper, the fact that it hasn't been extended to all those workers. Because I think it's always fascinating to me when the government always tries to create sort of administrative sort of reasons or political reasons for excluding particular sections of workers, because in the end, it actually just, it's all calculated, it all actually just creates extra administration work uh, that they have to pay some public servant uh, to deal with. And, um, but it's, um, but and it ends up creating more problems where, you know, it would have been just better if they just included every worker from the beginning and there would have none of, been none of these sort of administrative problems. But I also think there is, it's a deliberate from the government in a sense that they do want to keep migrant workers and, uh, insecure workers to be in insecure positions. They, they still want to keep them in that position during that, during a kind of pandemic. And I guess, I want to change a bit, change a bit of the discussion a bit slightly. Um, on the whole, one concerning kind of trend I've, I've sort of noticed, um, and of course this is a very, a minority of people, but there is a concerning sort of right wing sort of movement sort of, I think, popping up against the lockdown in Melbourne. In fact, I noticed there's going to, apparently going to be a rally in Sunday, on Sunday, uh, against the lockdown and, you know, one of the, while, you know, one of the actual culprits, I think, that we should be pointing to is the Murdoch media. The fact that the Murdoch media um, is going on a right-wing attack against Daniel Andrews. And now, of course, I have plenty of criticisms of Daniel Andrews. I don't think he's handled this pandemic well. But I actually think that this right-wing criticism of, from coming from the likes of Andrew Bolt in the Murdoch media is completely base, baseless. And it's also completely hypocritical because these are the same people that were arguing, uh, the arguing that COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic was no big deal and that all these restrictions, um, and lockdowns were unnecessary. So I think, you know, there is this right, um, there is this growing right wing movement of people who are opposing the lockdown, but it's actually been inflamed 
by the likes of the Murdoch media who have actually been giving lip service to this right wing movement. And we can only we can only be glad that this right wing movement, which I think in some ways has characteristics of the far right, uh, is not as um, bi- um, is not as big as say um, as say it is in say Germany, um, which had a rally of over ten thousand and thirty thousand against lockdown, and of course in the United States, which has been reinforced by um, the presidency of Donald Trump. Yeah, Nick, this uh, comes back to some of the comments that Alison was making earlier, that uh, it actually is kind of, uh, I don't know, is is it super radical? Is it, I mean, in the long term, it's in the benefit of the economy not to have a rampant outbreak of COVID-19. So I think even by capitalist logic, there's a certain argument for having severe lockdowns because it ain't good when you've got, you know, huge, like the USA, just this massive uncontrolled uh, outbreak running rampant. And that's shown by the US economy where that's been one of the hardest hit by COVID despite their lack of uh, tight lockdowns. Uh, but yeah, Alison was making the argument that this idea of locking down the economy and stopping production and stopping profit in order to preserve human life is kind of radical and uh, arguably we should defend the Andrews government from these sort of attacks uh, from from the right wing. But yeah, as you say, the the far right, and let's be serious here, these are the same people. This is the same people that were doing Reclaim Australia and, you know, protesting in disgusting sort of trying to whip up Islamophobia and racism. It's the same people uh, that are, that are pushing these anti-lockdown rallies. And yeah, they're, they're greatly, um, they're trying to rebuild because uh, the Melbourne left was able to successfully counter protest them and, you know, whittle them away and wither them away and push them back into the fringes from whence they came. And, uh, they're just trying to recover from that using this COVID stuff as a, as a platform. But uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's definitely the case that lockdowns to preserve human life are the way to go. You, you can't, there's no moral argument. This, this idea that we should just open up the economy and let people die so that business can continue as normal is just a totally morally bankrupt argument. And it's all fun and games until it's one of your friends or relatives that's killed by COVID. And then suddenly it's, uh, it all comes into stark relief. And it's um, quite interesting looking at the situation in the UK. Um, the UK has, is in a really particular weird situation. Um, in fact, if you read the media, it's a bit bizarre. Um, basically they've attempted to open up, um, a lot of the pubs, cafes, restaurants, etc. while COVID-19 is still actually quite a big thing in the, in the, in the community. In fact, they have not successfully made it at all. And of course, what has actually happened is people are not actually going to the cafes or the restaurants in the interests of their health. And so you have this weird irony where businesses um, who um, in these industries are trying to charge customers like half price just to encourage people to come to their cafes and restaurants. And, of course, there's also this strange thing, um, policy from Boris Johnson where 
Um, there's all these restrictions on being able to see your elderly grandparents or your relatives or your aunts, etc. Uh, but you can freely go and get a drink at a pub. So yeah, there's all these sort of strange sort of, um, inconsistencies. And I also think the Swedish example, the fact that Sweden went, um, went for a strategy of just keep everything open, uh, has actually devastated, um, has been a devastation from a public health perspective, but it's also done the, from the perspective of capitalists, uh, it hasn't actually benefited the economy at all. In fact, there's been articles coming from right-wing sort of bourgeois media sources saying that actually Sweden has not, um, had any, has been, has had not any, had not had any benefit from, uh, a, having an easy, um, no lockdowns. Yes, and uh, just a little update on Sweden because back in uh, sort of March, April, when the first lockdowns were happening here, people were going, oh, look at Sweden. That's an enlightened social democracy and they're not having a lockdown. Well, uh, since the uh, since then, Sweden has developed uh, over 80,000 uh, confirmed cases of coronavirus and uh, 5,760 people have been killed. So really the comparison between Sweden and other countries like here that have implemented lockdowns is pretty speaks for itself, I'd have to say. Hmm. Uh, anyway, um, maybe I might, I'll just play, I guess, a quick announcement. Um, and yeah, we might move on to something else um, for the rest of the program. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 94198377. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. You're listening to Green Left Radio. And for the rest of the program, I'm going to play a recording of a talk by Pauline Galvin, um, who is a candidate for the Sue Bolton Moreland team. Um, and this is a recording of a speech um, that she gave at a campaign meeting that happened recently on July the 18th. Um, so, yeah, hope you enjoy. Introduce yourself. Thank you very much, Felix, um, and thank you and hello to everybody at home. Um, so, yeah, I have really thinking in terms of what I really want to get in, bring to this campaign, the fact that I've got a science degree and a real understanding of evidence-based is something I think really that I want to emphasise the, I have really been uh, inspired by Sue Bolton and the work that Sue Bolton has done in our community. And it, uh, one of the things that I've learnt through public health is that you really need, in order to achieve anything, you really need to be able to speak to the people who are in the situation. 
And time and time again, that is what I've seen Sue Bolton do. I've got, um, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, so, uh, one of the things that I've really, uh, valued from Sue is her community engagement. And it's such a good, strong characteristic for every campaign that she's been involved. And, uh, that's, yeah, it's something evidence-based that community engagement is really important. Uh, the, one of the things that I've kind of been given a little bit of the, um, the our platform to talk about, uh, but I really wanted to also touch on something around solidarity. Sue is such a fantastic example of solidarity with all of the people in Moreland. Um, and that's really a value that is underlying why I chose to um, step forward and be a candidate in the South Ward. So uh, I really want to be upfront and yay solidarity. There's something about the ongoing struggle of all people that brings us together, all that Billy Bragg songs of people coming together. Sue is just such a fantastic example of that and I think really inspiring, something that she very much brings to all, like just so many campaigns that we have been involved in together over many years now. Um, that example of actually people stepping forward and walking their, their talk uh, is something also that I really admire in Sue Bolton and the other people that are stepping up as candidates with our campaign. Um, the, one of the campaigns that I've really been involved with over many years is transport in and around Moreland. I think that um, transport is such a crucial system to get right. If transport works right, it works for everybody. And if transport isn't working for everyone, it's not the right thing. It's the potential to have a sustainable, useful um, community underlying supporting system is just huge. Where I live in, in Moreland, I've got good access to public transport that was put in a hundred years ago, the tram lines, the train lines. I, our family of four can get by with one car that mostly sits on its own out in the street because we live in an area of good public transport where people, these systems were put in a hundred years ago. I am benefiting now. My family is benefiting now because of that work that was done. If I, my family lived further north in Moreland, up around Faulkner, we would need to have three and four cars to get around. And that is a, an indication of the system that's in place. We would be, it's basically transport poverty because you've got to pay and pay and pay to run vehicles. Um, so if you can fix the underlying system, you get, uh, a better run system that works better for everybody. 
And that's one of the things that the Sue Bolton Wallen team really are stepping up and committing to is a, an analysis and review and doing some advocacy on actually getting a public transport system that works for everyone. We've got a number of issues that we're addressing. The train line is a really crucial point. The turnbacks that have been happening at Coburg really disadvantage everybody further north and it's just not fair. It's just not right. Uh, so we need to work with the council, work on the council, to work on the state government to actually get decent public transport planning in the city of Moreland. We desperately need it. It's okay in the southern ward, not bad, but the northeast and the northwest wards, we really, are, we've got a segregated population here in Moreland. It's just not fair. Extending the tram line, the number 19, up into Faulkner, again, it's that line at Bell Street that is uh, people south of Bell Street have got a, well, actually that one's further north, isn't it? But we need to extend the, um, Accessibility, we need to extend the tram things further out to have access for more people in Moreland. Also, we need the other tram line, the 55, to be extending further to make transport more fair in and around Moreland. Um, the, that acts, that attitude of approaching people to talk and um, find out what's the issue for them is really something we need to take with across real safety issues in our streets. We need to really have an evidence-based look in what is the actual risk to people in our streets. Is it pedestrian behaviour? Is it driver behaviour? Is it speeds? Is it what is the problem? And the people who know the answers to those questions are people who live there. We're committed to talking and listening to the people of Moreland. I am standing in the South Ward and I, if I can bring for the people of the South Ward the advocacy and the commitment that Sue Bolton has shown in the people of the North East Ward, I think I'll be doing very well. Um, so I'm just going to check my notes about other things to say. So... Protecting greenery is something that we've really important uh, all over Moreland. We need to protect that what we have and actually plant some more. We need to really protect that urban habitat around issues like heat in Moreland is really critical. We need good building planning, uh, building standards so that people can live effectively like a cool life with a low energy footprint. Having a building that you need to run an air con on the whole time is just embedding a high carbon, a high energy footprint, and we need to stop it. We really need to step up and address the climate change issues that we um, are coming up with. We need to stop making it worse. We've got a number of things around that, and we need to actually make sure that the poor people aren't the ones that are having to carry the can when the rich people can go, oh, I can just put my air con on and then I, it doesn't, I'll be fine. We just need systems in place that 
everybody is looked after and everybody gets to have a low energy footprint. That's the sort of stuff that Moreland Council is going to be able to do. We, they are currently starting. We need to roll that out across the whole municipality, absolutely targeting people in public health. They absolutely need access to sustainable, uh, free energy, like Get those panels on those units. What the hell, people? Um, so a lot of issues that we just – people have got great ideas. Moreland has started. We need to just ramp up a number of those uh, issues, um, those solutions to problems. Um, so, Felix, am I – how am I going for time? Oh, actually, I'm in. No, you're good. You're pretty much right. <laughs> on. You've got another minute if you want. Um. So I guess in my final minute, wrapping it up, where we are now in 2020, we know the answers to this stuff. What we just need to do is just do the answers, put them in place. We need to talk to the people who are in the communities, what their problem is, and then listen and then do that thing whilst keeping, so that's the local, acting local thing, whilst keeping an eye to the incredibly impressive evidence base that is out there about what our problem is and what we can do about it. We just need to bring the political will to make those changes happen. We know what the changes should be. We just need to do them and put pressure at every single point that we can on our elected officials and on our systems and of governance of both the council but also the state and the federal level, every possible level, we need to step up and be loud and get in their face for the world that we want to bring forth a leave for our kids and for the, everybody else's kids and all the other animals that actually all still live here and have a, you know, we're not the only species on the planet. We need to start acting as if we have one world and that we need to share it evenly with all life not just the other monkeys. You're listening to Green Left Radio. You're just listening to a recording of a talk by Pauline Galvin for the Sue Bolton Moreland team campaign meeting. Now, um, we are getting into the end of our program. I'd like to thank all our listeners um, for tuning in this week and that we should, um, and, my, um, and to end with the message, keep fighting for a better world. See you next, I'll see you next week. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right. The commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.